0: Our scripture lesson tonight comes from the good news, the gospel, according to St. Mark chapter 10. Uh, We're looking at just a piece of this story and then we'll share the rest of it in just a moment. Let's share God's good word together. They spent some time in Jericho as Jesus was leaving town, trailed by his disciples and a parade of people. A blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting alongside the road. When he heard that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by, he began to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. Many tried to hush him up, but he yelled all the louder, Son of David, mercy, have mercy on me. This is the word of the Lord thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, friends, this is a very exciting time for me. Uh, As I shared last week uh, around here, uh, we have three really huge things. Uh, The top of the list for us is Easter. We are Easter people. Anybody say amen? Amen. We are Easter people, people of the risen Lord. Um, God is alive and among us. Uh, secondly, we have Christmas Eve. And if you haven't already made plans to be here Christmas Eve, you should. It is just awesome. Um, you know, beautiful candlelight services, 335 and 7 o'clock. Uh, it's just an amazing time. It's coming up. We'll just dream of it being cool. It'll be nice. Uh, but then there's Bible school. And there's just nothing like Bible school Um, for us at Acts 2 because it's a full week of being able to uh, get to know your friends and your neighbors and decorating on Sunday and and being with the kids and now, with services on Friday night and on Sundays, both, uh, multiple services on Sunday, this is really our one time a year where we get to spend extended time getting to know our friends and neighbors. We've had uh, about 112 new people join the church since January. And so this is our opportunity to get to know our new brothers and sisters in Christ, to be able to hang out over some popcorn or a hot dog or, um, you know, playing um, Frisbee, or standing with me in the parking lot making sure that everybody's safe. Um, So we hope that you'll participate with us in some way uh, that makes sense for you as we come into Bible school starting on Tuesday night. So as a way to lead into this, uh, we wanted everyone as part of our community to know uh, the core principles and understandings that we have that we're going to be teaching the children. So on the first night, we're going to talk to them about care. Will you say that with me? The word is care, and we talked about that last week, that sometimes it's hard to care uh, because you're just worn out. Uh, And the Bible teaches us very clearly in Galatians that everybody is to carry their own load. But from time to time, everybody has a burden. If your house burns down, if you get hit by a tornado, uh, if you have cancer, if you're going through chemotherapy, there are certain times that we all need help. And if you find yourself on one side of that equation only, if you're a person who always needs help and there's never a day that you don't need help, that's a problem. All of us are in in the strength that God gives us supposed to help others when we're strong. And, and likewise, on the other side of that, if you're somebody who's always strong and you never need any help, that's a problem. Because that's just not true. Uh, there's some denial and some other things going on. We all need help from time to time, but none of us are supposed to need help all the time. Uh, that should be a very, very rare instance. Um, and the Lord talks to us about that as well. So tonight, we move from care and, and, and we move to follow. How do we follow Jesus? If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take them out. And, and we're going to look at the story, the very last miracle that Jesus does before he goes to the cross. This is the last major teaching, the last thing of import that Jesus does before he enters Jerusalem for the Passover um, and is, of course, crucified, dead, buried, and then raised again. So as a way of introduction, I want to show you a map. Um, as many of you all know, Chantal and I went to the Holy Land a few months ago. And Jesus um, and Mark... Starts up up here in Galilee. This is what they call the Galilee, and so Lake Galilee um, here. It's a few miles across, about 12 miles long, um, about 30 miles in total. And Jesus hangs out up here, and it is beautiful and lush. And so as we start, uh, Jesus is up here, and it's coming Passover time, and so it's going to take him nine days by foot uh, to gather his folks around him and go all the way down. Um, into what's known as the Judean Desert, and he's going to follow the, the Jordan River because otherwise you would die because it's desert and there's no water. Um, and then he, he's going to come to Jericho. And then at Jericho, there's a problem because there's 15 miles between Jericho and Jerusalem, and it's through the mountains, and there's no good way to get there other than by following the river pass. It's very dangerous. It's very steep. uh, There's a huge change in elevation. And over from Mark 9 to Mark 10, you're going to follow Jesus from the Galilee, a 9 days journey by foot. Of course, he's going to have to stop for Sabbath in the middle of that, and he's going to bring all of his followers, all of his disciples, anybody who's listening to his teaching with him by foot All the way down and then up through the mountain pass into Jerusalem. This is a very dangerous, very difficult thing that Jesus is doing. And he would do this every year since the time he was 12. And you might remember uh, if you've been a a scholar uh, of the Bible for a while. If you've been through Bible study, you might remember that Jesus went to the temple when he was about 12. He would have begun making this journey. Jesus is going to be about 32, 33 now. And so for about 20 years, Jesus has been making this trek. And so this is the, the scene of the story. So as a way of introduction, Jesus is on his way from Capernaum at the top to Jerusalem for the annual Passover festival. This is the Passover where uh, the Jews celebrate that God freed them from Egypt. Uh, and he chose them over and against the people of Egypt. As a matter of fact, they, when they go through the Red Sea, uh, God closes up uh, the sea on the Egyptians, saves his people, and the Egyptians drowned. So before Jesus, the Jewish understanding was that Jesus was for them. Uh, God, I should say, God was for them. God wasn't for everybody. It wasn't God so loved the world. It was God so loved the Jews. That's how they understood it uh, before Jesus. And it was Jews over and against every other tribal people. And it was God who saved them over and over again from the Philistines, uh, David and Goliath's story, uh, or from the Samaritans, uh, uh, the Assyrians, uh, the Babylonians, over and over and over again. It is God who winds up saving them. So, as a rabbi, as a teacher who had followers, Jesus would teach. That's your first blank there. He would teach or instruct uh, his disciples and others along the way as they walked along uh, these paths. All these folks would go in mass, sort of as this huge parade, um, all the way from Capernaum down to Jerusalem. And so, as a as a precursor before Jesus gets down to Jericho, where we find the beggar, um, it starts like this in uh, Mark nine. He says, they came to Capernaum, which again is in the north, and when he was safe at home, uh, he had a home there that he shared with Peter and Peter's mother-in-law, uh, he asked them, meaning the disciples, uh, so tell me, brothers, what were you discussing on the road? The silence was deafening. You see, they'd been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. Something that Jesus is not a fan of, by the way. And so Jesus sits down and he summons the twelve, and he says, so you want to be first place, do you? Then take the last place, be servant of Of all, And, of course, Jesus will model this on the last night of his life by uh, washing feet of all the disciples. Now, in this story, in Mark 9, while they're still up in Capernaum, Jesus takes a child and he puts him in the middle of the room and he cradles the little one in his arms and he says this. Whoever, speaking to his 12 disciples, whoever embraces one of these children as I do embraces me. And, far more than me, God who sent me. Now, I would remind us, friends, that until Jesus... Children had no status, no power, no property. As a matter of fact, they had something um, in the culture until the time of Jesus where they called it exposure. If you had a child that you didn't want, you could simply put them outside a- until they died. You had, uh, this was particularly problematic with girls because uh, of the physical labor that was demanded in those times in first century Palestine, um, first century Judaism. Basically, if you had a child, if you didn't want it, you just kind of took them to the edge of town and that was that. Um, never to be heard of again. But that's not what Jesus said. So when Jesus comes, he's taking everything that everybody knew and he's turning it on its head. And he says children were not that are finally considered persons. Until Jesus, they were not considered persons. They were simply property. They had no status, no power. And so Jesus is trying to teach the disciples, hey, you guys have been arguing about who's the greatest. Let me show what the greatest looks like. These children are part of the kingdom of God. And unless you begin to have faith like a child, trust like a child, then you're going to miss out on what God is doing. Because what God is doing is greater than what any of us are doing on our own. It's God's agenda. And when we get on God's agenda, beautiful things happen. So the story continues um, then in chapter 10, verse 1. It's from there he went to the area of Judea across the Jordan. And a crowd of people, as was so often the case, went along. And he, as he so often did, he taught them. So, you know, from up Capernaum, he's teaching them all the way down into this area. And so, again, if we can go back to the map, um, what you'll see is, so now he taught them with a, a little kid. He brought him for him up here. And then he's traveled all the way down to sort of here in the Judean desert before he gets to Jericho as he's traveling down. And he's teaching them all along the way. So the story continues in verses 13 to 16. It says the people brought their children to Jesus. Now, again, this was very unusual. This is not something you would do uh, with a rabbi. You wouldn't just bring children. um, And and quite frankly, you wouldn't bring women either. It was a a male-dominated society. And so it was very odd uh, that these children were coming to Jesus. and, And the parents were hoping that he might touch them. And the disciples, though, they shooed them off. They're like, look, these kids aren't supposed to be here. This is the greatest teacher that's ever lived. We're his students. It's a coup for us to be able to be here. This is awesome. Go away. But look what Jesus says. Jesus is irate, and he lets them know it. He says, don't push these children away. Don't ever get between them and me. These children are at the very center of life in the kingdom, meaning the kingdom of God. Mark this, unless you accept God's kingdom in the simplicity of a child, you'll never get in. Then gathering the children up in his arms, he laid his hands on them and he blessed them He gave them a blessing. This is who Jesus is. Jesus looks at people that the rest of society say are not important, are on the outside, are not ready, are, don't know enough, aren't learned enough, aren't mature enough. And Jesus says, come on, all of my children are welcome. All of my children. And quite frankly, it's, it's really hard to teach people who think they already know everything. It just is. So Jesus is looking for people who are available and vulnerable, people who are teachable. That's who Jesus is looking for. And so the adults, the disciples who should have known better, they're shooing off the very people that Jesus is trying to welcome. And Jesus is warning the disciples, that's your blank there, Jesus is warning them and us that we must give up our normal calculations of greatness. Really, seriously, that we have to give up our normal calculations of greatness if we want to participate in what God is doing. So let me ask you, who is great in your mind? Who's great? I think Kevin Durant is great. When I think of great, I think KD is awesome. He's got his own restaurant, glow-in-the-dark menus, he can jam backwards. I think KD's great. Who else is great? You all have great people in your minds? You see, we all have sort of great people in our minds, and what God says is, they're not excluded. No, no, no. They're welcome in my kingdom, but I also want you to think about the people who you don't think are great. The people that you don't think belong. The people that you don't want around you. The people that you wouldn't expect Jesus to work with. So in Mark 10, 28 to 31, um, this is point two. uh, This goes on in the story. So Peter, you know, the first bishop of the church, right? I mean, Peter's a, a great guy. The one that Jesus looks at him and says, look, your name is Peter, um, I'm going to call you the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. So Peter is a big deal. And so this, is, this is what Peter says to Jesus on this trip from Capernaum to Jericho to Jerusalem. He says, Lord, we left everything, everything, and followed you. I mean, you know, they're kind of incensed. They're like, look, we're doing our best here. I mean, we've been traveling around with you for three years. Uh, we've gone where you told us to go. Uh, we gave up our fishing business. So, um, you know, come on. And Jesus says this, mark my words, no one that includes us, no one who sacrifices house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or land or whatever because of me and the message will lose out. You see, to follow Jesus is the greatest thing you can ever do. It's the safest bet you can ever make. It's the greatest trip you can ever go on. And Jesus says, look, 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 I know you think it's a big deal that you're following me, Trust me, if you follow me and you're part of what I'm doing, you will not lose out. You'll get it all back and multiplied many times. Many times in homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land, but also in troubles. That's going to be true too. Because with Jesus, everything is amplified. It gets bigger. Bigger than us, bigger than our life, bigger than our lifetime, bigger than our country, uh, bigger than ourselves, certainly bigger than our church. And then the bonus of eternal life. Now notice that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he talks about your real life today. And then as a bonus eternal life. Now that's something the church has missed for hundreds of years now. What Jesus says, the kingdom of God has come, it is at hand, Uh, do these things that I'm doing, where the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, and as a bonus, eternal life forever. That's included, that's a part of it, but that's not the only thing. And he says this is once again the great reversal. And that's what Jesus does. He takes the world and he puts it on his head. Everybody said that Pilate and Rome was the greatest. No, Jesus was the greatest. People said that blind people were cursed and away. Jesus says, no, you're part of my kingdom. People say, keep the children away from him. He says, no, bring them here and put them on my lap and place my hands on them and bless them, let the world know that they're important. And it was the early church uh, um, in the first 300 years where infanticide and exposure stopped because it was the first Christians that began to take And these children created the first orphanages that the world had ever seen. And then Jesus says this. Many who are first will end up last. And the last will be first. And Jesus would talk about this and they really wouldn't understand it. But he would continue to move towards Jerusalem to the very last days of his life. And was Peter wrong? Did, did, Did Peter say the right thing? I mean, was Peter true? Was it true that they'd given up everything? Absolutely true. I mean, he wasn't wrong. But he didn't get it completely. You see, in Matthew, in the other gospel, uh, one of the other four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Matthew 4, we find the call of Peter and the other disciples. And it says it like this. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee up there in the north, right, around Capernaum, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And he calls them. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Um, And look, look what happens. He says, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they do. And immediately they drop their nets. They they leave their whole fishing business. And they follow Jesus. They follow him. All the way to his death. And they start the church. That's a beautiful thing. So following Jesus is to give up everything. Next to him. In competition with him. And less awesome than he is. It's not a burden, friends. Now, you'll note that certainly for these fishermen... To be connected to Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, was the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. These were hard-working folk that had been oppressed by the Roman government and by other governments in their past. Uh, In the 700s, about 700 years earlier, uh, they had been defeated by the Syrians, uh, by Assyria, basically. Uh, And the northern kingdom, was uh, all the people had to basically be taken off uh, to Assyria. Um, And they were brokenhearted about that. There was a southern kingdom at the time that sort of survived a few more hundred years to about 586. Those people were then overcome and overwhelmed by the Babylonians, modern-day Iraq. And those people were enslaved and taken. So these people knew hardship and pain and and government after government after government that basically owned them and and occupied their area. Rome, the latest of the tragedies. And they knew that. And so when, when Jesus comes and says, follow me, it was a chance of a lifetime. It wasn't a hardship. Now, that's hard for us as folks who live in Edmond, uh, one of the richest zip codes in our whole state. So when we have a chance to follow Jesus, now it's harder, isn't it, in some ways? Because it's like, wow, you know, I could give up some stinky fishing business that keeps me hot in the sun all day. Uh, That's different than giving up the business that I've worked on for 40 years, where I get to be in air conditioning, make a good wage, got some good health care, got some insurance, got a family, got good schools. There's a lot to give up when you follow Jesus uh, as, a, as a Westerner in, in Edmond, Oklahoma. So it's, it's hard for us to get our minds around. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus says each time, friends, I'll bless you, I'll help you, your life will be better. This, there's nothing greater in all the world than being a part of what Jesus is up to. And so then finally, we come. To the story that we started with today. All of the rest of it is set up. For what happens on the road to Jericho. So in Mark 10 46. um, It says they spent some time in Jericho. They've gotten that far. On their walking journey. Where Jesus is teaching his disciples and others. All the way down. So again if we get to the map. You'll notice they've made some good progress now. Right? They were up here at Capernaum. uh, They were around Lake Galilee. And they come all the way down here. All the way to Jericho. Right here. Now. This is where it gets interesting, because there's only 15 miles left to Jerusalem, but it's really, really dangerous. It's really, really dangerous. And so I want to show you what the Jericho Road looks like uh, even today. So there's a monastery down in the valley. Uh, If you were to uh, go back and look at the sermon series we did around this, um, you've seen these uh, before. But you'll notice there's a road uh, down underneath where the monastery is. Uh, This is about halfway between Jericho uh, and Jerusalem. And if you zoom in a little bit, you can, you can see um, right how the road, uh, and there's, there's like a little riverbed uh, right by it. And if we zoom in again, I think we can, uh, you can see that that's what, what you would be looking at. Now, the problem with travel like this is, if there are terrorists or bandits or robbers, you're toast. There's no way to get through these kinds of passes and see what's coming around the next corner. You just can't do it. The geography doesn't allow for it. You, you simply have to go hoping for the best. And so no one traveled this road alone, and that's why when Jesus talks about the story of the Good Samaritan, people are like, well, hold on a minute. You know What was that guy doing traveling that road, and how did he get beat up and all that? So note that at this point in the story, Jesus has come from Capernaum. He's come down through the desert. He's gotten to Jericho, and right as he's exiting Jericho, there's a man on this road. Now, it's not going to be just this road, though, because as Jesus was leaving town, Jericho is the town, trailed by his disciples and what? A parade of people. Okay, You see that in Jesus' day, by law, every 12-year-old male within 15 miles of Jerusalem had to attend Passover at the temple. It just so happens that Jericho was roughly 15 miles from Jerusalem. So the entire city of Jericho would have to travel to Jerusalem if you were 12 years old or older and a male. And if you were part of that family, you would often travel with them. And so, you know, Jerusalem would quadruple in size during Passover because the law demanded it, that you would go to temple and you would make your sacrifice for the Passover. And so imagine, if you will, um, this treacherous skinny road and now not only do you have Jesus and his people you have every other family that's on pilgrimage from all the way to Capernaum all the way down to Jericho all the places in between and the major city of Jericho trying to get to Jerusalem and so now you have tens of thousands of people all crowded on this street and everybody knows this is a great place to get mugged right it's kind of like New York City uh, on New Year's Eve kind of a thing back in the 80's when, before it got cleaned up It was just something that smart people didn't do. But you had to do it if that's what you were doing. And so they're moving. And so here's Jesus, his disciples, his crowd. And now they're having to move body to body, shoulder to shoulder, you know, kind of gown to gown through, hoping for the best on their way to Jerusalem. And it's in this scenario, it's in this scene where the women and the children and the disabled men who could make the trip or who could not make the trip all line the streets by the thousands. And in Mark 10, 47, um, the scripture says this. As Jesus was leaving town, trailed by his disciples in a parade of people, a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting alongside the road in this mass of people on this very dangerous road. Now, this is interesting. Uh, most of us would not catch this, but in the Greek, Timaeus is a word that means victory. So this blind beggar's name is son of victory. It doesn't fit at all until he comes before Jesus. And I would remind you that beggars were a common sight in most towns. This was not uh, unusual. Um, beggar, it's its kind of like it is today in, in in undeveloped countries. I mean, begging is normative in, in lots of places, particularly if you're blind, if you have a disability. Uh, begging is what you do. It's what you can do. And And one of the things that they would tell you is that the, depending on what your malady might be, you would have a different color of cloth or coat or outer garment. So if this had been your malady, you might have that pretty white you know, sort of embroidered uh, cloth, and that would tell you that this was a person of this sort of society. Uh, or if you might have a red one with this kind of society. And so this is what that means to beg in Jesus' day and in today. It hasn't changed much when it comes to begging. You'll notice four of the guys are beggars, and one of the guys is sort of their handler, if you will. Now, I don't know, it doesn't say much about it in the Bible about that, um, but as we were talking around the office this week, you know, it, it really is a good question, isn't it? I mean, is, is the handler a good guy or a bad guy? It's hard to know. I mean, if you're getting money, and he's making sure that everybody gets their piece of their cut, it's a, it's a very tenuous position to be in if you're a beggar, isn't it? Because you have to have someone lead you. You have to have someone to protect you. But you don't really know if they're protecting you or taking from you. There's just no way for you to know that. And so in this next uh, photo then, uh, this is a, an actual beggar, a blind man, uh, who's begging with his certain color of coat. Uh, and, and I want you to imagine what it would be like if you were uh, a beggar, um, if that was you. Uh, Natalie, uh, my assistant, uh, made me a cloth. So here's Here's mine. Imagine yourself, blind, sitting by the side of the road. Now there's thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands of people around you, and you're just hoping, you know, for some coins. Hoping for some coins. That's just, that's what you're doing, right? And, and, and you know that the Messiah, the long-awaited one, this, this um, Messiah that Isaiah has talked about since 700 B.C., 700 years earlier, you're sitting there and you hope might he come by your road might he come through he should come through right he's going to jerusalem he's got it he's got to come by here and you've heard that he heals people and you're hoping for something and everybody's lining the streets beggars were common And, and you see basically if you couldn't do physical labor they had no use for you so you had nothing else to do but to beg and here was the other thing blindness was a curse People considered anyone who was born blind a curse. Now, you would be reminded that in the Gospel of John, Jesus says very clearly to all those around him, he says, watch this, I'm going to heal this guy. And the people asked him, well, is that because of his sin or his parents' sin? And Jesus said, no, 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 no. That's not the way this is at all. Watch this, I'm going to heal him because he too is a part of the kingdom of God. So the, the normal sort of response around the people were, well, look, if you were blind, if you were lame, if you had a disability, that must be a curse on you. And Jesus says, no, these are my children And so, Jesus refutes this idea by the healing of the blind. And so we come back to Bartimaeus, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, which means the son of victory. And when he heard that Jesus the Nazarene was passing by, he began to cry out, Son of David! Son of David! Have mercy on me! Now, many people tried to hush him up, but he yelled all the later, Son of David, mercy! Mercy, have mercy on me! Now, he caused such a ruckus. I mean, he caused a scene that the whole processional stops on their way to Jerusalem in this very dangerous area between Jericho and Jerusalem. And she says, call him over. And they did. They called him over. He says, your lucky day. He got up. And he says, he's calling to you. And look what he does. This is amazing to me. Like, I don't, I, 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 don't, I'm, I don't, I take off my glasses. I don't want to fall off the stage. But you imagine this. He's sitting there like, David, have mercy on me, son of David. Now, I would remind you that son of David is the title of Messiah. This is the same thing that got Jesus killed about a week later because it was a name he used for himself. It was politically very dangerous to do. And he says, get up. And this is what he does. He's like, son of David, son of David. And he goes to him. i lost my microphone. Right? Now, I would remind you that this was this man's only way of making money. This was his only way of living. And while he's still blind, he goes to Jesus. He throws off his old life all the things that he owns in the world, and he goes to follow Jesus before he can see. Now that's dangerous. And thousands of people on a dangerous road. Son of David was a way of addressing Jesus as the Messiah or the Christ, the King of the Jews. And this was very risky. You see, what happens is that Jesus includes everyone, the blind, the disabled, children, in his life. And Jesus says, this man somehow finds his way to Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and he says, "Uh, what can I do for you? What can I do for you? Now, this is important, friends. If the creator of the sun, the moon, and the stars, the Lord of life, the king of kings, Lord of lords, ever asks you the question, if you ever get a sense in your spirit that God is saying to you, what do you want? Have an answer. Really, have an answer. Not like, well, I don't know, whatever he thinks best. No. Have an answer. And what does he say? The blind man says, I want to see. Of course he does. I want to see. But notice he doesn't say, well, I'm not really sure because the begging thing's working for me at some level and you know, I'm kind of afraid to give it up. But maybe if you might think about, what do you think, Jesus? Do you think I should see? No. Jesus says, what do you want? And if you don't have an answer, you're probably not going to get it. He says, what do you want? The blind man says, I want to see. My whole life I've been dreaming about seeing. I want to see your face. I know that you're the son of God. I know that you're son of David. I know that you're Messiah. I know you can make a difference. I want to see you. And look what Jesus says. On your way. He doesn't even touch him. He touched all the other blind folks that he healed. Not this guy. He just says, on your way. Your faith has saved and healed you. Salvation and healing. See, those go together. Sozo in the Greek is really the same word. Uh, saving and healing, it's all a part of this shalom, the peace, the way God wants the world to be. And in that very instant, he recovered his sight. Not before then, he had to come to Jesus messed up, blind, penniless, afraid, on a dangerous road with all kinds of folks he didn't know watching him. It was in that instant that he recovered his sight and followed Jesus down the road. Now, where did that road go? To the crucifixion, to Jerusalem, to the temple, a very difficult life, a very difficult road. It wasn't an easy road that Jesus was calling him to, but he goes anyway. You see, the man traded in the whole life that he had. And that's what the disciples did. I mean, they traded in their fishing business. He traded in his garment, threw it off of him, and he left it behind. And we're all called to that when we follow Jesus, to have a new life, to not live like we lived before. To trust Jesus with our new life. But he needed a new identity. He needed a new identity. He needed to to be able to say, I used to wear that. Now, I'm new in Christ. In our tradition, we have something called an Ash Wednesday service. On Ash Wednesday, um, you have ashes placed on your forehead to remind us that we're mortals. One day we will die. From dust we are created and to dust we shall return and the thing that I love and don't love about our Ash Wednesday service at Acts 2 is we intentionally do it at night so that people can come from work and do it as a family and, and know that. But, you know, the downside of that is we all have Ashes from about 745 to 815. You know, it's not much of a marker to the world. It's sort of a reminder to us, but it's not much of a witness unless, you know, you happen to work from 8 to midnight. Other services are held in other traditions at Noon. And I got to thinking about that. What if instead of ashes that we put on in the evening right before we take our shower at night, we got a permanent marker? Anybody up for that tonight? And yeah, when you come up for communion, before you take communion, as a way to remember who you are, I'm not talking about a tiny Sharpie, I'm talking about this big fat thing. Smell it stinks. You know, and you come. We will stand right here, and you just pull your hair back. i like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. any takers? Y'all ready for this? Yeah. See, now that is the faith of a child. You see her raise her hand. She's like, yep. That that is what Christ is looking for. You're. It's kind. Of, I'm kind of weirding you out, aren't you? Like, what do they do at Acts two? I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not doing it either. But I'm just saying, right? I mean, think about it. what if your permanent identity was in Christ and you couldn't shake it, you couldn't smudge it off, you couldn't fake your way around it, you couldn't kind of be like this at church and kind of like that at work. That wherever you were, you had the mark of the sign of the cross on your forehead and you said, I am Christ's. He died for me, and I live for him now, always. And his power lives in me, in this life and the next. I am healed, I am saved into eternal life as well. The follower of Christ. How does this feel in your mind, in your body? To think about, I'm going to walk around with a sharpie marker on my head the rest of my life so that everybody knows. That if for some reason my actions somehow are not fulfilling that requirement, if somehow somebody doesn't know I'm a follower of Jesus, at least I'll have a sharpie mark. Friends, we should never need that, should we? I mean, the idea is to live our lives where that just seems ridiculous because of course people know I'm a follower of Christ. They I'm doing the things that Jesus did. I'm loving the people he loved. So here's the question. In Jesus' day and our day, there are still people that others consider non-people, non-persons. Which, if we get real serious about it, means that we really believe they're outside the love of God. Who is that in your mind? Don't tell me no one. I mean, we... Let's, let's just check our Christian responses at the door. Be real for a second and say, you know what? I, okay, I'm not going to say it out loud, but I got somebody. I'm pretty sure. I oh, know I don't like them. And if I was betting, I'd bet Jesus doesn't like them. Friends, Jesus likes them. Jesus loves them. And because he lives in us, we are to love them as well. You see, the the blind man didn't just say, oh, thanks for my healing and go on back to begging. He received his healing and he followed him to his death. And so the action point tonight is, you know, that person that you want to think of as a non-person, that person that's on your last nerve, that person that you think is outside the love of God. If they're a child or a family, I want you to invite them to Bible school Tuesday. That's who you need to bring. And if it doesn't fit that area, then that's the person you might need to go to lunch with or take a walk with or send a note of encouragement. These, these are the people that God says, there, there are no nobodies in my kingdom. And in that way, heaven and earth begin to come together again. Because of what Jesus does, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, for you and for me, throw off your outer garment, and follow him. In Jesus' name, amen.